When a great person dies, history makes a point to record their last words. The seven last words of Jesus spoken at the cross are brief sentences that are extremely profound and weighty. These are the Savior's parting messages and instructions, given not only for the benefit of those at Calvary, but for all generations. In spite of his agony during the crucifixion, Jesus' last words didn't express anger or resentment, but they demonstrated the strength of a righteous person in full command of his dignity and purpose. The Gospel of John summarizes the crucifixion with these words, He loved unto the end. But what meaning do those last words of Jesus have for you? The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. Today I want to travel back in time to the cross of Jesus here in Jerusalem. Let's reverentially stand near the cross and enter into the old spiritual song that asks, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And let's hear the last words of the dying Savior recorded in the Gospels. We surely can't relieve his sufferings, yet we can honor him as the others did who stood at the foot of the cross. Picture with me the scenario as we draw closer. The Lord has endured hours of torture, mockery, and rejection. Most of his disciples have forsaken him, except for the beloved disciple John, and the three Marys, Mary his mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cloephas, and other women who'd followed him. Peter had been so confident the night before at the Lord's Last Supper, the Passover Seder, he said that he would never deny the Lord, but he had, in fact, denied him three times. And so full of guilt and shame, Peter watches the crucifixion from afar. Nevertheless, he's an eyewitness of the horror. So here we are at the cross, as near as we can get in the Gospel of John with his mother, and some of the Lord's relations and friends. At first they stood near, but afterwards, it's probable, the soldiers forced them to stand afar off, as they are described in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Yeshua, the Passover lamb, is suspended between heaven and earth on the cross. His enemies are mocking him and rejoicing that his day and popularity are seemingly finished. A sword pierces through Mary's heart, as was prophesied by the prophet Simeon in the temple on the day that she had dedicated Yeshua. But the Gospels don't record that Mary behaved in a wild manner like we see in so many Middle Eastern funerals on TV. The portrait we have both of Jesus and Mary is one of extreme suffering, yet profound dignity. A sword shall pierce through thine own soul, said the prophecy in Luke 2, 35. That prophetic word gave a measure of comfort and perhaps even understanding to Mary because she had pondered in her heart the saying of the prophet Simeon in the temple. The prophetic word helps to make sense to otherwise perplexing and devastating circumstances. 
You see, Simeon had taken the baby Jesus out of Mary and Joseph's hands, and he had prophesied, Behold, this child is set for the falling and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And yea, Simeon said as he turned and looked at Mary, A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Thank God for the prophetic word. It helps to prepare us for crisis. After more than 30 years of hiding and pondering this prophecy in her heart, Mary had lived to see the terrible sight of her firstborn son impaled as a common criminal. Well, Exploits Ministry is based upon Daniel 11.32, which states that the people who know God will be strong and do exploits. And although he was fixed to the tree by cruel nails, I want to put forth that Jesus nevertheless was working for six long hours on that cross, one hour for every millennia of men. He accomplished the greatest and mightiest exploits in all of history as he hung there on the tree. While the world doesn't look at the cross as a great place of achieving exploits, the world sees Jesus as a pitiful victim. But I contend it was necessary that he should die for the sins of the world, and the Bible does too. He made himself an offering for sin, and he accomplished that sacrifice when he willingly gave up his life. Although he couldn't move, he could only bleed and die, nevertheless, he finished a great work. Yeshua made atonement for the sins of the entire world, for all who will put their trust in him as Savior. Let's look for a moment at the gospel in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 5. And this is one of the amazing messianic prophecies written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes or wounds, we are healed. And over in the New Testament, on the other side of the cross, 1 Peter 2.24 quotes this Messianic passage and declares that the prophecy was fulfilled in the Lord's passion. The Apostle Peter said that by his stripes we were, past tense, healed. And now let's go back to Isaiah 53 and verse 4. It says in English, Surely he has borne our griefs, but in Hebrew it says he's borne our sicknesses, our diseases, and he carried our sorrows. But in Hebrew, the word there is more exacting. It means our pains. He carried our physical and our mental pains. What an exploit for time and eternity Yeshua accomplished in the atonement. He suffered every category of wound so that by his all-encompassing wounds, you and I are healed. Here in Jerusalem at the Notre Dame Center of the Vatican, there is a permanent exhibition of the Shroud of Turin, believed by many to be the actual burial shroud of Jesus. 
Although the Catholic Church doesn't claim the shroud is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus, they do claim it's an icon. And an icon means literally a holy picture that tells a sacred story. Many years ago here in Jerusalem, we were praying that there might be an exhibition, some sort of museum devoted to the crucifixion so that visitors and pilgrims to the holy city could have a better understanding of this crucial event. And today there's this permanent museum about the famous Shroud of Turin at the Notre Dame Center near the new gate of the old city. It illustrates the crucifixion in graphic detail. After examining the Shroud of Turin, a medical expert said that the corpse envisioned and pictured on the shroud was an adult male, five foot ten inches in length. The estimated body weight is 175 pounds. The corpse with nail wounds in his wrists and feet appears to be a man about 30 to 35 years old. And in the forehead and scalp are blood stains. These stains appear not only on the forehead, but also on the back of the scalp and at the top of the head. The man has suffered some sort of crown or cap of thorns. Well, along his way to the crucifixion on the Via Dolorosa, falls were unavoidable because of the jostling of the crowds and the heavy weight of the crossbeam. Sometimes Jesus would be forced to walk sideways and he, he couldn't possibly see and would slip and fall due to his weakness and the awkwardness of carrying a crossbeam on his shoulders that had already been lacerated from scourging. And evidences of a fall in the street are marked on the shroud. Even if you don't believe it's the actual burial cloth of Jesus, as an icon, it gives a picture of what it was like to be pushed through the crowded streets of Jerusalem on the way to Calvary because the kneecap on the left leg suffered a very bad laceration. I often think of the battering that our Lord's knees took when he fell so that we can be healed vicariously of knee injuries and weaknesses. The wounds on his knees represent the price he paid for every time that we've bowed down to an idol either literally or figuratively. Roman soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his holy head, and this represents our thought life, the theater of our minds. Jesus, the Son of Man, became guilty in our place for our rebellion and for our unwholesome thoughts. But if we will repent and call upon his name, God promises to forgive us, to cleanse our thoughts, and transform us into new creatures with pure, wholesome thoughts, purged by the cleansing blood of the Lamb of God, Yeshua, is his Hebrew name. The Roman soldiers also nailed the Lord's holy hands that had healed so many to the cross. His hands were wounded because of every wicked deed that we've committed with our hands. And why did they drive a nail through his feet? It's because our feet have taken us into varying levels of darkness, despair, drugs, immorality, murder, abortion, robbery, worldliness, you name it. Every sin, every step of man in rebellion to God 
was laid on Jesus' body and on his feet. Because Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, moving forward in John chapter 19, after it was all over, just to make sure Jesus was dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. The Lord's heart must have been punctured because out of the wound flowed blood and water. The side represents companionship, and theologians point out that the first man, Adam, was put to sleep by God, and God took from Adam's side a rib to fashion Eve, his wife. And on the cross, Jesus fell asleep in death, and from his open side, God birthed the church, the Lord's bride, by water and by his blood. That's very deep, isn't it? Something to really meditate on. But now, as promised, let's examine the seven last words of Jesus at the cross because these tell us who he really was and is. The first saying was his marvelous prayer of forgiveness. Father, he said, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Yeshua knew that they did it in ignorance. This important prayer of forgiveness covers all the sins of all the parties involved, Jew and Gentile alike, religious leaders, the people, and the Romans. The centurion who stood sentinel at the cross, no doubt, was used to hearing cursing and swearing by condemned criminals. Never a prayer of forgiveness. No wonder the centurion confessed, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many people today are sick and afflicted because they've held resentment and grudges towards somebody, a family member, a spouse, a co-worker. But if Jesus could forgive such baseless hatred, we must humble ourselves and follow the Master's example. His second utterance is about paradise. It never ceases to thrill me every time I read this. Although the Lord's words were uttered in the midst of agonizing pain, imagine the word paradise crossing his parched, broken lips. What an irony! Yet this second saying was evoked because of the request of the repentant thief who was crucified with the Lord and who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The Lord's response, even in the midst of his pain and agony, was his customary way of speaking with great earnestness. He began, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Do you hear any faith in that? We hear both the faith of Jesus and we hear the faith of the repentant thief. Because of the joy that was set before him of bringing many sons to glory, Jesus endured the pain and the humiliation of the cross. And surely the thief's faith was a comfort of camaraderie to our dying Lord. Because the repentant thief observed the dignified way in which Jesus was dying. He saw the Lord's character, his words, and behavior. This brought the repentant thief to the conclusion that 
Jesus is indeed the door. Even now, anybody who repents and says to Jesus, remember me, let me be Lord wherever you are, will surely belong to him and be saved by Yeshua from eternal perdition. Now the third saying was poignant and tender. Looking down, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, John, standing by whom he loved. The Bible commentator William Barclay wrote that there's something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother. Even though Yeshua was occupied with the most important event in the history of redemption, he still had the presence of mind and the character to make provision for the needs of his mother. He remained a faithful firstborn son to the end. Fulfilling his responsibility to care for Mary, because her husband, Joseph, is presumed to have already been long dead, so from the cross, the Lord makes provision for Mary's future, placing his mother under the protection of his beloved disciple, John. Jesus knew he could trust John to look after Mary in her old age. King David had taken care of his elderly parents, and Jesus, the son of David, makes provision for his mother. The Lord's words were, Woman, behold thy son. In other words, from now on, he said, give your motherly affection to John. And looking at John, Jesus said, behold your mother. And from that hour, John took her into his home. Such a heartbreaking charge never to be forgotten. I've often meditated on this saying. Jesus gave special honor to John by making him the guardian of Mary and in this hour, Jesus wants to entrust his beloved brethren, the Jewish people, to intercessory believers who will take them to our hearts, just as John adopted Mary. Jesus still suffers today because many of the institutional churches have turned their backs on the Jews and fallen into anti-Semitism once again. Sadly, tragically, Jesus cannot entrust his blood kin, the Jews, to many of the institutional churches who are apostate and actually boycotting his people Israel. May the Lord have mercy on the churches and send desperately needed revival. Well, during her heavy trial, Mary's composure at the cross, as I said, is admirable. She doesn't tear out her hair. She doesn't tear her clothing or make an outcry. But with dignified composure, she stands with her faithful family and friends, strengthened by a divine power, such as is imparted to martyrs. Expectation of his resurrection may have supported her also. You see, until we're tried, we don't know what we're capable to bear. But the Lord has a saying in the New Testament, my grace is sufficient for thee. An interesting teaching that we can take from this turn of events concerning Mary and John is that sometimes when God removes a person from our lives, he raises up another for us, perhaps where we weren't expecting it. The deepest relationships in life are not always genetic, but can be spiritual. 
And John didn't resent the added expense of having to care for the mother of Jesus because those who truly love the Lord and are loved by him are glad to serve him and his people. Historians tell us that Mary lived with John at Jerusalem for about 11 years, but others say that she moved with him to Ephesus. And when we visited Ephesus in modern Turkey, we toured a house where supposedly Mary had lived. The local people believe it anyway. It's important, by the way, to point out that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever call Mary mother. He refers to her as woman or dear woman. You see, Yeshua was much more to Mary than a son. He was her savior, according to her own confession in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 and verse 47. At the cross, there was a difference in their relationship. Jesus was no longer to be regarded foremost by her as his son. Rather, he was her savior. The fourth saying from the cross was the Lord's dark night of the soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During three hours in which darkness covered the land, Jesus in agony wrestled with the powers of darkness and suffered his father's displeasure against our sin because he was making his soul an offering for sin. I like the way Matthew Henry's commentary explains it. Never was there such hours since the day God created man upon the earth. Never such a dark and awful scene. It was the turning point of man's redemption and salvation. Jesus at that moment chose to utter a complaint from the first verse of the Messianic Psalm 22. You see, we can follow his example in our darkest moments. He teaches us to use the word of God as expressions in prayer. And why was he forsaken? Why did he, by faith, quote Psalm 22? Theologians explain it was because he who had known no sin actually became sin at that moment as he took upon his own body, upon the tree, the sins of the entire world. And my friend, Bible chronologist Derek Walker says that a blood moon arose the evening of the crucifixion. There were signs in the earth, earthquakes, and in the heavens. Even the moon was turned to blood as our Lord emptied his blood for our sins. The Lord's fifth saying was simply, I thirst. Parched from dehydration and loss of blood, Yeshua was in effect reciting or thinking of verse 15 of Psalm 22, which says, My mouth is dried up and my tongue cleaves, sticks to the roof of my mouth. His cracked and parched words, I'm thirsty, elicited the response of a moistened sponge that the soldiers lifted up to his mouth on a hyssop rod. You see, the reference to hyssop in John 19, verse 29, ties together the Old Testament prefigure of the red heifer who died for the sins of the people with the death of Messiah who died once and for all. And there on Golgotha was hyssop, the blood sacrifice, and Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps the moisture of vinegar 
that they gave him helped Jesus to garner strength to utter his next saying with a loud, determined voice. Not the voice of a defeated weakling, but the voice of triumph. And that was saying number six. And within itself, it's a powerful sermon in three words in our language. It is finished. Yeshua gave this word at the time of the evening sacrifice when the last Passover lambs had been slaughtered and he shouted from the cross with a loud triumphant voice that it was done, it was finished. Bible teacher Chuck Missler explained the meaning of the phrase. It actually means paid in full. You see, our sins were paid for in full. They were truly, totally atoned for. The culmination was reached. The supreme act, the consummation of offering up his soul as a sin offering was completed for time and eternity. Therefore, the seventh and last saying is a brief sentence of complete and utter trust and faith in the eternal Father. In one final act, Yeshua decides to yield up his spirit and die. Truly in this final act of obedience, the Lord fulfilled his own saying, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I myself lay it down. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my father. Now to sum up these seven words at the cross, if Jesus the Messiah could forgive his enemies and assure the thief on the other cross that he would be saved, and if Jesus could be so selfless as to remember to provide for his own mother during his horrific agony, then surely now that he has risen and has been seated at his Father's right hand in power and glory, he is eternally able to save us and to provide for us until old age. For he truly died for us and loves us with an everlasting love. And he's coming again to take us to himself. So my question to you is, would you say that you've been to the cross? Are you living your life in such a way that you have come to the cross and received the Lord's salvation and forgiveness? And are you in fellowship with other believers who can be closer and more loyal than blood kin? It's so good to be part of the Church Without Walls worldwide. And if you would like to pray to receive the Lord, we encourage you to do it now while there's yet time to be saved. Don't be afraid. Just say, Lord, I do believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead and I'm willing to confess with my mouth that he is Lord. Would you do that? I'd, I'd love to hear from you and stay in contact with me. You can make prayer requests for healing uh, by contacting me through the social media or at our website at exploits.tv. And there you can click online to receive our ministry newsletters and also watch our videos 24-7. I've enjoyed my time today with you talking about the seven sayings of Jesus. And until next time, contending for the faith, I'm an evangelist of the empty tomb here in Jerusalem, Christine Dark. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Shalom.